Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. You delve each time around into those tales of true crime that you may never have heard of, or you may tentatively know that are horrific, sometimes hardly believable, but each true from the shores of the UK and Ireland. Having sourced these out for you is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. The hairy football, Pixie, the true crime enthusiast cat, is lurking around here with me too, somewhere, listening out for his little bell when he chips in with his bit. And completing us are yourselves, the enthusiasts of the show's title that keep me doing what I do and what I love to do. It's wonderful as always to have you joining me in the MOG today, which I thank you so kindly for doing so. And as you have, then I hope it's for an episode that finds you and yours all good, all safe and all well. So this episode then brings with it the conclusion of the Lost Boys arc that I started at the end of August of this year, and it's very much a wrap-up episode, which I shall get onto shortly, following my usual thanks out. Firstly, thank you to all who've gotten in touch concerning the tale to date, for your kind and honest feedback, and well-wishing refit, it means an absolute world, and although it is a terrible one to research and write, I'll admit... I am made of stern stuff and it just spurs you on to do the tale the justice it deserves. But thank you very much for your concern. Absolute best fans ever. Thank you also to the returning and new Patreon supporters of the show with shout outs here for new friends Johanna Kirby, Leanne Shaw, Karen Murray, Rebecca Stiles and Wildwood Weeds. It's so very kind of you to support folks and it means the world that you have. Now, should you want to join this kind lot and get yourself a full series of unreleased tales from the enthusiast, or perhaps even a bit of show stuff, when the posties pull their finger out, that is, then it's dead simple and dead quick to do. Just head to Patreon and seek the show out on there. It's got the same logo and all that. Or there's a link to it ever present in the episode show notes. You can be hearing such tales as Angel from Hell, Sanctuary, or the latest one that's out. You deserve a medal for that quicker than a UK Prime Minister changes, and although I'm torn between subjects of Patreon episodes for the latest time around, though each will come to your ears at some point, a Supernatural-themed bonus episode will be out very shortly. And with that, it's time to bring the Lost Boys arc to a close. Now, I don't think that by part 8 I really need to recap all here, so I'll bring you as up to date as is possible with the tale in its entirety, and then give my own thoughts and feelings concerning it. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events involving sexual crimes against children that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, Please join the True Crime Enthusiasts for the final part of The Lost Boys for an episode I've entitled The Aftermath. So I shall begin wrapping up the arc by tying up a couple of loose ends that haven't been covered in episodes to date, beginning with Ian Gabb, arguably without who Barry and Mark may never have gotten any form of justice at all. I said that he was released at the completion of his sentence without reward or remission, which is true, however, he was to be compensated down the line for his undercover work. Released from Wandsworth Prison on the 18th of June 1990, 
and obviously enthused in the role that he'd played with bringing child sex monsters to justice. Gab reportedly embarked on his own version of an anti-paedophile crusade, posing as homosexual, and then soon forming a relationship of sorts with an unnamed man, though who reportedly was the then chairperson of the Doctor Who Appreciation Society. Gab quickly became convinced that his lover was heavily involved in child pornography, and decided to force him to reveal details of the hardcore pornography videos featuring young boys that he was convinced he was trafficking. Going full on death wish then, to do so, Gab bound the naked individual in chains and padlocked them, then produced a set of stripped bare electrical leads plugged into the mains, and proceeded to torture him with them. It was only by chance that the fuse blew, saving the man's life. Gab was arrested as a result and charged with attempted murder, a charge which was later reduced to one of wounding with intent. It was when he appeared at the Old Bailey for trial in July 1992 and was convicted that his work on Orchid was rewarded when, following an account from the Orchid detectives about the assistance that Gab had given them that had subsequently helped bring a life sentence to Leslie Bailey for the murder of Barry Lewis, and charges against him concerning Mark Tildesley, that presiding Mr Justice Michael Coombe awarded Gab a large discount off the sentence he was facing, leaving him serving a total of three and a half years. Result for him there, or what? Number 36, Ashmead House, part of the Kingsmead Estate in Hackney, the scene of so much depravity and horror as we've heard also today has new tenants. I'm unsure as to whether they're aware of what had exactly gone on there previously. Perhaps some it doesn't bother, as some people can put things like that to the back of their minds, can't they? I certainly don't think I could live there, and though it can hardly be knocked down, for it is in the corner of the fourth floor of the block, it could surely have been sealed off and reutilised for something else, like council storage or something. Mind you, people do have to live somewhere, and other places to have seen such horror still stand and are occupied. For example, 23 Cranley Gardens, or Samantha and Jasmine's flat in Plumstead. So perhaps this is just wishful thinking on my part, me being an idealist. But enough of a digress to the boys themselves. In the years since the events I've described throughout the arc, the families of each boy mentioned have tried to move on with their lives as best as they can do, and in the cases of Jason and Barry, have rarely spoken to the press, nor have authored any books, as some family members do in cases such as these. Mark's family, out of the three, the one boy still definitively lost, have more so though, as you'll come to see. It must be incredibly difficult for any family blighted by such evil to fully move on, especially when reviled figures such as Cook are featured in the news or things like my own take on the tales appear. Hence it's important to be respectful and humanist, constantly with the boys' families in mind, and I'm happy that I've done so here, I have tried my best to. In the 37 years since Jason's death, his family have largely closed ranks and not spoken publicly about their grieving process are on the occasions that his tragic tale has been raised again publicly, most notably following the trial of Cook, Oliver, Barrel and Bailey for his manslaughter in 1989, 
and when Cook was released in 1998. Even though Sid Swift and Joan had split back in 1979, they were together for each day of the trial, becoming so overcome with emotion that they had to leave the public gallery during the defence speeches. His father Sid said later, prior to sentencing, I've been to every day of the trial and just cannot believe what has happened. Words aren't capable of describing how I feel. I feel numb. I'm happy they've been found guilty. I can't say what they should get. That's up to the judge. But whatever it is, it won't be enough. Jason's dead. He's underground, but they're still living. The men who killed my son go so far beyond the bounds of decency, you cannot even call them animals. They don't deserve to be on this earth. They insult the human race. I had to go out or I might have done something I regretted. Those bastards should be hung, drawn and quartered. I was very close to Jason. He was the image of me to look at. I never mistreated him. I loved him dearly. I put his death behind me once, but the trial has opened it all up again. Why should anyone want to take a 14-year-old boy's life? He was a happy lad who enjoyed life, but he hadn't had time to live. I noticed one of the woman jurors was weeping at the end of the case. It must have been an awful ordeal for them, and it's clear they paid the utmost attention throughout the case. Jason's mother Joan told the Daily Mirror newspaper, It was my Jason they were talking about, but it seemed like a complete stranger. How could the son I knew and loved get involved in that? I want to tell what he was really like. He had the most beautiful eyes. He was always very quiet and it was hard to know what he was thinking. I suppose he just never showed how unhappy he really was. I can't remember how many times I had to fetch him after police found him wandering the streets in Soho. It just never dawned on me, even though I could often see he'd been crying. No mother could suspect that of her child. Now Joan went on to describe a boy who would save up the last of his pocket money to buy her a Mother's Day card or a birthday card and who went out of his way to care for the kids who were less fortunate than him at the school that he attended. One of her fondest pictures of Jason and one that was reprinted in the press being that of him hugging a disabled friend of his. Joan continued Finding out after his death how he'd been spending his time was like a bolt out of the blue. When he began disappearing, I tried to frighten him by warning him he would end up murdered in a gutter, never imagining it might really happen. I used to tell him not to go off on his own, but I was so happy to see him safely home, I often forgot my anger. I should have been harder on him. What sort of world is it that can corrupt an innocent child like that? How is it that a boy with so much to offer could end up having men for money? He went to the West End for adventure and ended up a corrupted wreck. He wasn't a male prostitute or whatever it is they call them. He was vulnerable and got hopelessly drawn in. The vermin who killed him shouldn't live. They are filth. Two of them started smirking at me from the dock during the trial. I wish I could have got my hands on them. I wanted to pull them limb from limb. They should die a slow, painful death for what they put Jason through. He must have been in so much pain. Now I'd argue against that. I think that each should live in constant mortal fear of retribution for every waking moment for them, for life. I'm thinking, it might happen later on today, it might happen in 10 years time, but it will happen. 
that kind of sentence, that fear bastards like this should have. We've heard how both Sid Swift and Jones separately joined in, joined in with protests against the sex offender unit at Nottingham Prison and against the release of Cook, respectively, with Jones saying in April 1998 concerning Cook's forthcoming release. It has been 13 years of hell. I can't stop thinking about Jason. I dream about him and wake in a panic. The other night I saw his face. Until his killers are six foot under, I will never be free to rest. And nor will Jason. Sidney Cook is evil. He's the ringleader. He's only served nine years in jail, but has sentenced me to life. And I have no doubt he will do it again. No child is safe while he's out. I want to kill him, but I wouldn't. That would be stooping to his level. However, the same article reports that Joan worried that one of her three other sons, Jason's brothers, could exact revenge if they ever came face to face with Cook. And of course, the desire to was there, but with it, clarity also. Jason's half-brother, Steve Nurcombe, explained in a stark interview with the same newspaper around the same time. At the trial, I wanted to leap into the dock and kill them for what they did to my brother. Those people in the home office who are letting him out don't understand how people feel. Their kids go to posh schools and live in posh houses. They don't go walking around East London housing estates where these paedophiles live. I'd just like to see the look on their faces when Cook does it again to a kid who lives around the corner. Minicab driver Steve, at the time of the article a new father, continued. It really upsets us that he's always referred to as a rent boy. To us, he was never a rent boy and he showed no sign of being gay. I reckon those paedophiles saw him hanging around the Kingsmead estate and got chatting to him in the local shop. They probably abducted him by promising to show him something. They could have had him in that flat for ages. We didn't know where to start looking for him. I was only 19 when he disappeared and you don't know what to do. Now, we all wish we'd done more. You keep thinking, why didn't we do this or why didn't we do that? But I'm not one to dwell on things. My instinct is to take action rather than brood. For a long time afterwards, I loathed gays. I couldn't bear to speak to anyone like that. Then I began to work next door to a gay bar and got to know some of them. I discovered, of course, that they're not all like that. But it's that protective instinct. I know that if anyone touched my daughter, I would get them somehow. But if I killed Sidney Cook, I would be put away for longer than him even though nearly everyone in the country would be on my side. I wouldn't risk it because I have to think of my family. But if I ever got him somewhere with no witnesses, you wouldn't recognise him. I would break every bone in his body. For killing my brother, Cook was judged the same as somebody who killed someone in a fight in a pub. To my mind, child killers should be judged differently. If they let Sidney Cook out, why don't they let out Myra Hindley? At the very least, part of the sentence for men who attack children should be castration. I know that some people say Cook has paid his debt to society and therefore should be free to go, but as far as I'm concerned, he can never pay his debt to society. The debt of Jason's life is too great. Understandable reactions and sentiments, of course they are, aren't they? Now, of course also, that bastard Hindley died not long after without ever being freed. 
and Cook's spell of freedom was, thankfully, short-lived, as we've heard. Steve and Jason's other siblings have gone on to have lives and families of their own, but sadly, Jason's mother, long since having reverted to her maiden name of Walker, passed away on the 31st of March 2014. She's today buried with Jason in Manor Park Cemetery, the headstone for both reading, Deep in our hearts and forever missed. Alongside her remaining family members, who visit often to pay respects to their beloved matriarch and their lost brother, the uncle that Joan's grandchildren were never to know. Retired Detective Superintendent David Bright visits the grave each year to lay flowers and to reflect on the tragic tale that he will always remember, which brought him face to face with pure evil. There's far much less able to discover through researching concerning Barry's family in the years since his death. But in Lambs to the Slaughter, the definitive work on the cases, which if you can get a copy of to read, then I can't recommend highly enough. It's a disturbing book, but it's been so helpful in writing the arc, I can't recommend it highly enough. And I couldn't have written the arc without it, simple as. But it reports that following his death, Barry's mother, Vanetta, told the authors how she would often take the then baby Pesci to Barry's gravesite, explaining, I took her to the cemetery to, inter to introduce her to Barry. I said to her, This is your brother. It's a pity you never knew him. You two would have had great fun together. I don't go to the grave every day or anything like that, but when I do, I talk to him and bring him up to date with all the family news. At least I've got a place to go. Mark's mum doesn't even have that. It must be terrible for her. The book also reports that Vanetta's lifelong friendship with Denise Layton was shattered forever by the strain of Barry's death, perhaps by misplaced yet understandable blame, perhaps equally out of guilt or it being too painful a reminder to stay in contact, and they'd parted acrimoniously. When years later Denise was asked if she thought Barry had been happy whilst living with her, she responded tearfully, Oh God, I hope he was. Now from all that we've come to learn about him, I would say that he was, and I would also say that any feelings of guilt or what if on the part of Denise, I can understand them completely, but it simply isn't Denise, nor even Jackie, who's herself an adult now, who should feel that whatsoever. It should rest solely on whoever snatched or lured Barry, the identity of whom cannot be abundantly clear today, though, as we heard previously, we can reliably place Cook a mile away around the relevant time. And sadly, guilt on the part of Cook isn't happening at all. The only other extent I could discover through researching is a quote from Vanetta following reports of Leslie Bailey's death in Whitemoor Prison in 1993, where she understandably said to the press, I hope he suffered as much as my little boy did. Now he's been strangled himself. It just shows that there is some justice in the world. Sadly, not enough to bring all of those responsible for Barry's death to justice though, was there? Today, Vanetta, if she is still alive, of course, will most likely be a grandmother herself. Nina and Pesci, adults themselves, are most likely having families of their own. His whole family must still miss and remember Barry, though. Nina and Vanetta, especially, 
never being able to fully get over the loss of the boy who was like a whirlwind and who was loved dearly by them. The uncle who was never to be and who never got to have a family of his own. The home-loving boy who disappeared on his way home, all to satisfy the perversions of monsters. Now, as I said just before when I described Vanetta visiting Barry's gravesite with Pesci, she remarked a sympathy that Mark's family didn't have that, and they haven't, for Mark is still the definitive lost boy out of the three we've met. It is reported that Cook has hinted he knows the location of Mark's body, but has always officially denied involvement in the crime. Yes, even despite the wealth of what we've heard. Now, at one time, Mark's family had other possibilities that may have led them to him, but two of the others involved, Leslie Bailey and Lenny Smith, have since died, both of which they made a point of celebrating when they heard the news of. Following Bailey's death, Mark's father John was quoted as saying, I wanted the bastard hanged for what he'd done to Mark, and now he's got what's coming to him. I think he's got his just desserts. There are a lot of people who were against him for murdering my son. We keep on hoping that we will find out where he was buried so we can give him a proper resting place. Some of those men who killed him know where they dumped him. But it is yet another link broken. With Bailey dead, one hope of finding my son's body has gone. John also says in the same article how Mark's abduction and murder had broken the health of he and his wife, and how Lavinia Tilsley had never been able to work again. Unsurprising, for myself and Jess alluded to in Mark's episode just how much his disappearance had dominated the family. Telling of the Christmas and birthday presents that were bought for him and that remained unopened, the way his bedroom was kept the same, only his clothes ever being put away as over the passage of years they would no longer fit him, the endless searches for him in which they scoured the country and even looked whilst abroad on holiday, the countless public appeals the family made, driven by Lavinia, and the roots of their own investigations, from sorting hundreds of mediums and psychics over the years, to even paying for a digitally aged photograph of Mark to be displayed on the thousands of missing posters that they made. All the while hoping against hope that he was still alive somewhere and would one day come home. It's even reported that it took Lavinia four years to stop setting a place for Mark at the dinner table at mealtimes. Heartbreaking, eh? It was a hope that was officially dashed for the Tilsleys and on the 22nd of October 1992, Leslie Bailey pleaded guilty to his murder. Needing somewhere to go and reflect, to grieve, on Saturday the 30th of January 1993, memorial service for Mark, the first since he'd vanished, was held at the Wokingham Methodist Church in the town's Rose Street, located opposite to the then Tildesley home. In a service attended by more than 100 people, the Reverend Robert McBain led an address heralded by Psalm 23, The Lord is My Shepherd, and closed with the hymn, there's a friend for little children, before the congregation then moved to the Free Church Memorial Ground in Reading Road to lay wreaths, where a black slate memorial headstone to Mark had been laid, reading simply, In loving memory of Mark Anthony Tildesley, born 31st of August 1976. 
Shortly after the public memorial, a lasting one, in the form of a jade-coloured bench, was erected exactly at the very spot where he would have entered the fairground back in 1984, to the right of the entrance to the now Carnival Leisure Park on Wokingham's Wellington Road, a brass nameplate affixed to it reading, In Memory of Mark Tildesley. Now in 2017 there was an uproar in the community when plans were revealed tending to move the bench to an alternate spot as part of upcoming site development works, with local residents airing their displeasure about this to Wokingham Borough Council. One, Michael Clough, said, I note the Mark Tilsley Memorial Bench has disappeared from the plan. Mark was snatched from the carnival on the site in 1984, never to be seen again. It is important that that bench is replaced somewhere on the site, or possibly the block of flats named after him. Another, Mark Bannister, wrote, A Mark Tildesley clause should be introduced and enforced. This should state that a permanent public memorial to Mark Tildesley should be retained in a prominent position on the carnival field indefinitely. Now the council, quick on the defence, relented on this, and today Mark's bench remains where it was originally erected, development plans altered to incorporate it in its existing spot. His family visit it to place two dozen roses on it each year, and today it bears a further plaque atop Mark's memorial one, one that was in memoriam to his mother, Lavinia Tilsley. Broken by Mark's disappearance, his father John had passed away in 2005, and it was shortly following his death that Lavinia had packed up the home that the family had had for more than 30 years, packed up the bedroom that the family had ever since kept exactly how Mark had last seen it that summer evening in 1984, and moved to nearby Langley Common Road in Barkham. She lived here for six years, even finding love once again, but still making continued appeals to those responsible to come forward and confess to where they'd concealed his body, never giving up the hope that one day Mark would be found. It was a hope she retained, though one sadly not realised, until she passed away on Sunday the 9th of January 2011, aged 75. Following Lavinia's passing, Wokingham dignitaries and friends of Lavinia paid tribute to the lovely lady who'd lived through dark days following Mark's disappearance. Councillor Bob Wyatt, who was mayor of Wokingham back in 1984 when Mark went missing, was one of the first to express sorrow at Lavinia's death, saying, It was with great sadness that I heard of the death of my friend Lavinia Tildesley, who lived for many years in what I always considered to be the most compact house in Wokingham the cottage in Rose Court. After her husband John died some six years ago, Lavinia moved to the Langley Common Road in Barkham. She always missed Wokingham, and she had spoken to me about coming back to the town which she was so devoted to, a wish which has been frustrated by her untimely death. She bore with brave fortitude the tragic loss of her young son Mark, a Palmer schoolboy, who never returned from his visit to the fair in what was then the carnival field in Wellington Road. Mark was never traced or his remains discovered, and Lavinia had to live through those dark days, and her only sadness was to have been left in uncertainty about Mark. All of us who knew her will miss her, and I offer my condolences to her partner, daughter and son.
Sue Jackson, a friend of Lavinia's who'd worked at the Citizens Advice Bureau when Mark went missing, echoed this, saying, I would just like to say how incredibly sad I am that Lavinia has died so suddenly, especially without any real resolution in finding Mark's body and being able to finally put him to rest. We did so much at the time with holding the memorial service for Mark and also having a grave in the free church ground. The most difficult thing was that Mark was never found, even though someone was convicted. I think the hardest thing for Lavinia was never being able to have that closure. She was a lovely lady. Indeed, she sounds it, doesn't she? A devoted mum above all. How high regard Lavinia was held in was demonstrated by the turnout for her funeral, with standing room only at the East Hampstead Park Crematorium in Nine Mile Ride, when it was held on Wednesday the 26th of January at 9.45am. A spokesperson for Thames Valley Police said at the time concerning its most notorious and longest-running investigation. Thames Valley Police has kept in close contact with Lavinia Tilsley since Mark's disappearance and remains in contact with other members of Lavinia's and Mark's family since she sadly passed away. Mark's mum has now passed away without getting the chance to lay her son to rest. However, we continue to appeal for any information which may allow us to recover his body. Thames Valley Police remain committed to finding Mark's body and will consider any intelligence which may lead to his recovery. Now, there was a brief flurry of excitement in February 2012 and it was thought that Wokingham's most notorious case could finally be put to rest once and for all when it was reported that a portion of a human skull fragment was found nearby to Evendon's Lane. However, it was later proved conclusively that this fragment did not belong to Mark Tilsley, as it was dated to be around 70 years old. A resident who lived near Evendon's Lane later came forward to say that the portion of skull had been buried by her son years before, after he'd been given it as a present by his grandfather, who'd found it in a cemetery in Cambridgeshire, and he'd not wanted to keep it, so he'd buried it. The identity of whose skull it was remains unknown. Creepy bastard gift from your granddad that is too, isn't it? PlayStation next time, please, Gramps. And so, still the strain goes on for the Tilsley family. Now, perversely, I found a report whilst researching the episode that in 2008, a former cellmate and lover of Cook's, paedophile David Patrick, had approached the family claiming to know where Cook had buried Mark, which he would reveal to them for the sum of £3,000. The same report claims that police later dismissed Patrick's claim as false and a mere attempt to extort money from Lavinia Tildesley. Now I haven't found anything else to corroborate this account but stuff like this sadly does go on doesn't it? I can imagine that anyone associated with Cook would be twisted enough to do such a thing and if this claim is valid then I hope Patrick was subsequently and suitably punished for it. Absolute vile scum. No wonder then, with things like this, that the pattern of broken health has run through the Tilsley family, for it wouldn't be fair or just to say that it was just the health of Mark's mum and dad that was broken by his disappearance, or it was just them affected. In 2015, aged 49, his elder brother Chris had a debilitating stroke and is now left unable to walk or talk, 
requiring constant care from his family, his wife Sina and his daughters Samantha, Marie and Sophie. Sina spoke to the Daily Mirror newspaper in 2019, explaining of the toll that Mark's murder had taken on the family as a whole, saying, Mark's murder destroyed this family. His parents couldn't even go to our wedding. They found it too upsetting that Mark wasn't there. They never found it easy talking about what happened. His dad wouldn't talk about Mark at all. His mum did sometimes, but she didn't like opening the wounds. She coped by focusing on her grandchildren. But I've seen the toll on Chris too. He's always been really protective over the girls and wouldn't let them go anywhere by themselves. Christmas and Mark's birthdays are particularly tough times for him. He tries to hide it, but I can see he's been crying. Chris was 17 when Mark went missing. He adored his little brother. He doesn't like to speak about what happened, but the last time he saw Mark was at breakfast on the day he disappeared. Chris was going to work and he said, See you later, pest. And that was it. He never saw him again. Before his stroke, he would say he wishes Mark was still here and it is eating him up not knowing what happened to him. That's what upsets him the most, that he doesn't know where his brother is. He wants to find him and give him a proper goodbye so his mum and dad can rest in peace. There are still so many unanswered questions. It's like torture for Chris. He needs answers. Cook is our last resort. He's going to die in prison. There's nothing left for him. Why can't he just tell us where Mark is? To this extent then, the family had made a last gasp plea to Cook, appealing for any slight shred of decency in him to end their torment, himself having nothing to lose. They did this in the form of a handwritten letter, an image of which was contained within the same article alongside a picture of Chris holding it, and which reads verbatim as follows. To Mr. S. Cook, we as a family would like to make one last appeal to you after the unbearable pain you have caused to us by saying you know where Mark's body is buried. It has destroyed our family by not knowing, especially Mark's parents, who have left us. They were devastated they never got to lay their baby to rest. We know you're at the age of 92. Time is running out, so we're asking you one last time if there is any ounce of decency in you to tell us where he is to end our torment. Please, we are begging you to tell the police the answers slash information we need to hear. We have had 35 years with no closure. Then in bold capital letters, the letter concludes, Please give us some closure. Chris, Zena, Marie, Sam and Sophie Tilsley. Heartbreaking, eh? Now I've shared the picture of this letter up in the show's Instagram page for you to see. In the three years since Cook has received this letter, he has never once responded to the Tilsley family. I'm sure you're not shocked to know that either. In fact, Cook probably loved getting that letter. The monster that he is. This arc then, overall, saving my wrap-up on my own thoughts up mostly for the past seven parts of it has been difficult, though I'm quite sure that my overall feelings concerning the tale will be all too apparent to anybody listening, because some parts of it I just have to react humanly to there and then. I don't have a persona here on the show. If it affects me, then I'm sure you'll know it does. 
So what I've done to create this part is gone back through what I've written to pick apart each aspect in the order that I have to give my own thoughts and feelings concerning the Lost Boys, beginning with Jason's story. I know surnames are necessary by now, of course, but these are boys we've come to know well enough. Jason's sad tale and its inclusion on the show. I can source back to the first ever true crime book I got, one that's still very precious to me today and still in the library, though it's quite well worn now. And unsurprisingly, it's the original Crime Watch UK book. His tale, and Barry's, who will come on to shortly, are featured as part of a chapter of it called Operation Stranger, named after the initial police investigation that linked his and Barry's cases. And out of the many times I've read it and digested the tale, and though I've known this one very well for a long time now, it's one I felt I needed to build up as a writer and broadcaster to tell, to do the best I can with it. But every time I've read that chapter, more so the older I've gotten, it's left me with differing emotions. When I first learned of the tale, when I was much younger than Jason was, it left me with a sense of fear that there were people out there who could do such heinous things. But over the years, as I accepted that things like that did happen, it left me more with an overall feeling of heartbreak. The thought of a boy who's just missing that something, that something at home. And I do feel it wrong that his mother had over the years gotten such a rough ride from the press, and perhaps neighbours too. My mum was a single mum for many years, and it is tough. But the boy who longs for just a bit of attention or affection, a caring boy who just wanted to feel that back, so much so that he's drawn into the murkiest of worlds as we've heard of, is exploited, at first certainly to degradation, if not physical harm. Well, it's a tragic enough tale on its own, that is. But to suffer the foul degradation that he did in that flat on the night he died in November 1985, aside from up to a dozen men using him sexually on some sort of depraved conveyor belt, but not content with that, then using sex aids on him also, and even a knife, for no thought of even attempted medical intervention for him, but instead to immediately degrade any biological evidence left on his body to preserve their own liberty. And then, the final indignation, to abandon him naked in woodland, like fly-tipping rubbish, without a second thought. Foul, depraved, despicable, insert your own word there, the poor, poor boy. It's just a heartbreaking story. And it would be, with Jason's tale, the extent of it. His, however, was the last known death that these individuals were responsible for. They'd already committed equal, if not worse, horror by that point, as we have heard. Now, there's a reason I've written The Lost Boys in the roundabout way as I have. I know it hasn't been chronological, but it's worked so much better as this for a structured tale. Or else we would have mentioned Mark first as missing then not again for several episodes, and this has fitted together and flowed so much more as is written. Barry, for me, is as equal a tragic figure in the tale, perhaps even more so, for he often seems to be the overlooked one. Out of the three boys whose cases I've brought here, his tale is certainly the one with the least research available for it. Arguably, whilst the widely publicised pictures of Jason and Mark are familiar ones with students of UK crime, Barry's is less so. His tale equally has chilled me when I first learned of it so many years ago now too, for as I said, it shares the chapter in the Crime Watch book with Jason's. 
For at the time, we were about the same age as me and Barry, and I regularly used to be out way more than 500 yards from home playing too. As I've gotten older and learned more of the horror of the overall case, now those responsible have long been identified, fear has been replaced with disgust and heartache. I know a semblance through researching of what that poor child went through at the hands of such evil, and it's not something you want to even try and imagine. Believe me, I have had to sanitise the entire episodes involving the three boys, because although I strive for detail in tales, I've said many times before, if it horrifies me, then I always want the listener to feel that same sentiment. There are lines, and there are some things I could and would not repeat, having learnt them. And again, abused horrifically by monsters who see that as fine, exciting even, and then cast off in a shallow grave miles from home. What words do you exactly use? I find it equally as tragic that Barry had two half-sisters, one he never got to meet and grow to love. His death shattered a lifelong friendship, as we've heard, and he never got to have a career, adventures, or to have a family of his own even. His mum and sisters, indeed all of his remaining loved ones, must even today still ache for the boy taken from them, because how could that ever ease, I ask you, how could you ever not? Taken from his loved ones and considered a piece of meat, all to satisfy the perversions of monsters. Now out of the three boys, it is by far Mark who is the more widely reported upon, and seemingly remembered by most. The research material is vaster concerning his tale than the other two boys, and his is also the tale out of the three that to date, I have gotten the most feedback about. It seems to be the one that breaks people most out of the three. Why so? Perhaps because there's so much research out there, his smiling face in the school picture is so synonymous with the tale, as to an extent is Jason's, but less so Barry's. But perhaps it's to do with the many words that his mother has spoken that you can read and digest, and the pain that although each family share, knowing what their lost sons went through, at least with Jason and Barry, their families have a resting place for them, somewhere to reflect and remember. This pain is somewhat greater for Mark's family, because he really is still lost. Both his mum and dad have each gone to their graves now, not knowing where he lies and his remaining family members are truly watching their very last chance of finding him slipping away, you can equate it to an egg timer running its final sands down, hoping, literally pleading, as you heard in the letter I recounted, that Sidney Cook will tell them where Mark is on his deathbed. Sadly, though I'm convinced he does know exactly where Mark is, for surely such a monumental and abhorrent act as burying a seven-year-old boy you've just raped and strangled, would be imprinted in detail in your memory for life, wouldn't it? I believe truly that this monster will take that knowledge into death with him, as a final act of perverse control and enjoyment. The police investigations that resulted in Oliver, Bailey, Barrel, Smith and Cook facing prison for their crimes were each commendable and remarkable ones. Imagine the horror that those detectives had to sift through, just imagine the accounts through interviews that they must have had to hear, through the depth and scope of such a depraved network as we've heard of, and not react to how we would each naturally react. Remarkable that is, there's no other word. 
and any praise and commendation that came their way is nothing short of wholeheartedly deserved. But as for the CPS, the powers that be, and the legal side of the tale, despicable, shambolic, and a slap in the face to each of the boys. Beginning with Jason's tale, to opt to reduce the charges to manslaughter against the four in the dock seems wrong. When the accounts and the evidence put before a jury trying them for murder would have surely put each away for life, you have to think. And to not have Donald Smith and Lenny Smith there also with them at the very least, you just despair, don't you? But at least the four were put away for a number of years, only to of course be released early against the recommendations of probation staff and the risk of them offending again by their own admission in the cases of Oliver and Cook because of the precious legality that protected their rights whilst not seeming to give a shit about the boys and their families. It infuriated me and made a mockery of the investigation and I can quite rightly understand the anger felt by every police officer who worked to put them there. Retired Detective Superintendent Roger Studley, speaking in 2015, even voiced the possibility that there was some form of cover-up posed by higher authority to do with the cases to result in this, saying, I think there was substantial evidence against Sidney Cook for the murder of Mark Tilsley, and the Crown Prosecution Service said it wasn't in the public interest to proceed. I found that a staggering decision, and nearly came to blows with the barrister who was telling me that. Whether they'd lost interest in the case, or whether there was direction from above, I don't know. They said there were faults in the way evidence was produced. I think they wanted somebody of good character to give evidence, and who of good character attends those sort of orgies. When I started out, I thought it was impossible that people would cover up. I'm not so sure now. It's a possibility. We thought we had the biggest sex crime investigation at the time, only to find out subsequently that things have overtaken us and made our inquiry look pedestrian. It's since then that the cover-ups have started to emerge. It started with Savile and people like that. It's those sort of things that makes me think a cover-up is possible. Now in the wake of Savile and all of the other scandals that have emerged in the UK over recent years concerning long-buried sexual offences by prominent powerful figures and how they were covered up, this isn't the biggest jump ever to get to, is it? There have long been rumours that Cook and Lenny Smith were heavily involved in the supply of young boys to various high-profile figures, and we heard accounts in the Brent Connection episode that these involved high-profile legal figures, the clergy, politicians, so whilst I'm not saying this is true, and it can never now really be proven, it's certainly not beyond the realms of possibility. Hearing the evidence that police had against Smith and Cook in the case of Mark Tilsley, it does seem a strange thing to not push for them to face a jury trial for murder. And there's always that slight niggle of the spidey sense thinking, is this a direction from higher up to cover up, and to instead merely prosecute Bailey in the case as a scapegoat? Now Bailey is somewhat of a polarising figure throughout this tale. Make no mistake, a complete monster, and he deservedly faced the justice that, being honest, no one with any decency would have battered an eyelid had it come to each of those involved also too, would they? Yet he is somewhat of a scapegoat here. Deserved of the two life sentences he obtained completely, but he shouldn't have been the only one facing them, and this is where the law surrounding the quality of evidence, or best evidence, falls down. 
infuriating that as cooperative as he was with police, and he was, to the best of his limited ability, his first-hand account should have been enough when taken in context with the other evidence obtained against Smith and Cook in the case of Mark to put them away for life, and against who knows how many in the case of Barry and Jason, and was not. Now I am just venting off here a bit. I understand that legal principles have to be adhered to, but surely, if there was any chance to keep these people off the streets based on the knowledge of what they'd done to who knows how many children, you would do whatever, legally arraign them on whatever you could to keep them inside. Even if it was years down the line, arrest them on their release date as they did with Smith and Cook before. Anything that keeps them off the streets. And yet, still today, even though there is the chance that each or either could be dead, and with name changes and no known locations, it's impossible to know, but there is the chance that Robert Oliver and Stephen Barrell today walk free, still undoubtedly capable of the crimes they've knowingly indulged in, even fairly recently, as we heard with Robert Oliver. Doesn't seem right, does it? Now thankfully, Bailey and both of the Smiths are certainly dead today. No sympathy whatsoever there. And Cook looks hopefully destined to die in prison. I say hopefully destined, for as we've heard, he's launched his 11th bid for parole to be heard next year, and put nothing past the ludicrous legal system and how it's come in favour of him in the past. Time is catching up with him though, and when he does croak, with it goes forever the secret of exactly how many boys suffered and how many even lost their lives at the hands of him and his gang. And there are certainly others than Mark, Barry and Jason. Think about the accounts to cellmates that each of these have shared, as we've heard, detailed in the letters passed to police by Gavin and Dale. Think about Bailey's vague, though I believe honest, recollections about parties he'd been present at, the disposing of bodies, locations he took police to where he claimed bodies were buried, and Christian names of boys that he gave police he claimed were boys that had been abused and killed. Now he's by no means the sharpest pencil in the box, and he was already serving life, so could he have come up with such accounts off his own bat, and what did he have to gain by making any of this up, except more possible notoriety for himself? I do believe he was genuinely recollecting as much as he could here, and there are somewhere at least nine other boys waiting, or sadly, perhaps never to be discovered. There is the possibility that not all of them were buried, and their bodies were disposed of in other ways, or their graves may now be underneath roads or constructions, the topography of the areas having changed drastically in 40 years. And of course, these may be the only ones Bailey knew of, because as with so much else about this tale, how far those ripples of evil spread, or when they started, or even stopped for that matter, you'll just never know. Undoubtedly, there are still people today who have several years ago escaped the clutches of Cook or like-minded individuals, and it may take something such as hearing this arc for them to open up or get stuff off their chests. Well, I say undoubtedly, I know fine that there are, for at least one, and I shall preserve all anonymity. One approached me while I was writing the arc to recount his tale to me, which with his permission I shall repeat here, verbatim, as was given me, as follows. Okay, well I was about 6 or 7, it was 1981 or 82-ish, and very much a latchkid key, 
During the school holidays and at weekends, me and my mates would be kicked out of the house in the morning and come home when it was dark or if called for dinner. Most of the time we would go to Victoria Park, which borders Bethnal Green, Hackney and Bow. My friend and I had been playing on the swings when an old man walked over to us and asked if he and his friend could push us on the swings. The old man was dirty looking and I clearly remember his fingers were yellowing and his fingernails were really dirty and he smelled of cigarettes. His friend was smaller and the one thing that stood out about him was his eyebrows looked like my mum's. I know it's an odd thing to notice. We both said no to the offered push on the swings and started to leave but the old man stepped in front of us and asked if we wanted to get a 20p mix from the shop. We both said yes, in brackets, I know, stupid. We started to walk out of the park with them and towards the shop. The smaller man took my friend's hand as we crossed the road. The old man placed his hand on my shoulder. We were almost at the shop when my friend's older brother came around the corner. His brother, who was 16, asked the two men who they were and what they were doing with us. The smaller man let go of my friend's hand and told his brother he had found us lost in the park and was taking us to the shop to see if the shopkeeper knew us. Before my friend or I had a chance to say anything, the old man turned and started to walk away, followed by the smaller man. I remember my friend's brother going off at us telling us not to talk to dirty old men and we could have been taken away, but his brother said he wouldn't tell our mums and told us not to talk to strangers again. Fast forward to November, me and the same friend are outside our estate doing Penny for the Guy. It was probably 5 or 6pm and dark when the same old man we'd met in the park said hello and started to ask us about the guy and how we made it. He said all of his change was in his car and if we wanted it, we'd have to go to his car with him. In brackets, first warning not taken. We both said okay. I said we'd have to take the guy with us because someone would nick it. The old man said we could see the guy from where his car was parked and no one would take it. We started to follow him to where he said his car was parked and I kept looking around to make sure no one had tried to nick the guy. As we got close to his car, which was green or a dark blue one as I remember it, I looked back towards the guy but couldn't see it from where we were. I started to walk back to see the guy when the old man shouted at me to come here. I got scared and froze on the spot. The old man grabbed me by my arm and started to drag me towards his car. My friend ran off back towards our estate. I can't put into words the fear I felt as he was trying to pull me into his car. As I'm writing this, I'm shaking over 40 years later. I can't remember screaming or shouting, but I must have gotten someone's attention because a lady and her husband started to shout at the old man. He told them I was his son and I was being a brat, but I said, he's not my dad and he was hurting me. The lady ran at him, calling him every name she could under the sun. He let go of me, then jumped in his car and shot off. The lady and her husband were so nice to me and walked me home. As we were nearly at the estate, my mum and brother and my friend and his mum were coming out of the estate to find me. The lady and her husband told my mum what had happened. I was left with scratches on my neck and left arm. My mum called the police, but I can't remember what happened and years later we never spoke about it. It took years before I would play outside again without being inside to my mum and all these years later the thing that still haunts me was his dirty fingernails and smell of cigarettes. The old man I'm sure was Sidney Cook. I've seen the photos of him around that time and he does match what I remember the old man looking like 
but I was very young and anyone over 12 to me was old. The smaller guy, I'm sorry I can't remember his hair colour, just the eyebrows really stuck. As I said, they looked like my mum's. As far as not looking real, more drawn on. I spoke to my mum today about it to see what she remembers. She's Scottish and has no filter. So to quote her, the police were a useless bunch of arseholes. They told her she shouldn't have let me out on my own. I think she felt really guilty after, but maybe because I was a child, I remember the East End being a safe place in the 80s. She told me something I didn't know though, that she started to carry a hammer in her bag in case I saw him again while we were out. It's quite a chilling account that, isn't it? I'd bet a month's wages that this was Cook being described here. The geography, the MO, the time frame, it all fits too well for it not to be, doesn't it? And why send such a lengthy and unrecollected account, if not for what? I'm completely convinced of the, of the validity of the source that passed me this recollection. I have no questions whatsoever about it. And that's just one example. I wonder how many others could share a similar tale. Now, there are several cases of missing and murdered children that are constantly linked with being potentially linked to Cook and his lot. Some that predate Mark, and others that follow Jason's death. And over time here on the show, we shall look at each, and you can see whether you agree, is there a connection or not there. The reason I've not included these tales as part of this arc is that you have to draw a line somewhere, or else a tale like this could continue and make a series of its own. You start researching one of the cases that I've just mentioned, and then it overlaps into something that you think, oh, well, that's a two-part episode on its own, that is, and so on. So I've decided that going forth, we shall come to each of those other boys in turn in episodes for another time. But their time will come, though. I'm sure you know that. I know it's been a harrowing listen this arc has in all. I've had so many people get in touch saying they've had to listen to an episode in stages or have had to stop completely after Jason's, Mark's or Barry's story. And I get that, I really do, for it is a horrendous tale. It now rivals the monster of Worcester that's up there for me. As I've said in a previous episode, researching and writing this has broken my heart so many times over. More so than any other case I've covered here bar the monster of Worcester. And perhaps even this tale is worse, because at least with McGreevy, the extent of his horrific crimes is at least known. But who knows what the extent of the crimes the likes of Cook, Smith and all are responsible for, and how many lost boys there really are still out there, their tales waiting to be heard, or sadly, perhaps never to be. Horror beyond belief and tragic all around. Yet, if it's something that invokes such feeling in you, it spurs you to do the best, the absolute best that you can do with the tale. Because Jason, Barry and Mark deserve nothing less and I've tried my best to. I can't say I hope that you've enjoyed this series arc, but I do hope that you found it both an informative and an interesting one nonetheless. And I invite any and all to get in touch should you wish to discuss any part of it. You can do so in the threads that are up in the show's Facebook discussion group or through any of the show's social media links, I'll always happily get back to you and discuss wherever. We have met some true monsters throughout this, and I know it's hard to see past them, but please, first and foremost, make the tale about the lost boys we've met, Jason, Barry and Mark. 
make your thoughts concerning the tale always about them first. Boys who never got to grow up knowing any nieces or nephews they would have had, who never got to have careers or to travel the world, boys who never got to have families of their own, all at the hands of monsters. I've been proud to bring you their tales, and I'll always think of them first and foremost, while the beasts who took them each rot. I hope that you can too. Now I'll be taking a short break following this episode coming out. It's Patreon week after all. But when I do return soon, we shall have somewhat lighter tales for a couple to perhaps restore the balance. With that, I shall shut up and put up, and so from myself and the Mog then, I thank you so kindly for joining us through the Lost Boys. And all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast. Wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, please keep you and your loved ones safe, and goodbye for now.